This is episode 25 of the Breakdown with Birkenhoff, and we have quite a bit of news to cover for today, so I'm not going to spend too long here on the introduction, but I just want to give a quick mention and shout out to the freedomscoop.com. Right now, the site is under construction, and we're kind of updating it for, uh, for it to just look a lot better. Not that the site originally looked bad, but just to look a lot better. So, long story short, the site is under construction right now. But uh, Freedom Scoop content creators are still making uh, videos and talking about the news and everything like that. So definitely make sure to check out Freedom Scoop content creators such as Jay Egger 101 Stephen Ingeramus, The Generational Gap, The Freckles and Brit Show, The R-Rated Conservative, and that should be it if I'm not forgetting anybody. <laughs> but they're all very good content creators who many of them have their own uh, daily news show in the mornings or in afternoons. And you could definitely tune into that to talk about the news from an everyday perspective instead of instead of just getting your news from mainstream content and uh, cable news and whatnot. We try to provide a everyday type of perspective when it comes to news. One other shout I was going to have is I am going to be starting a weekly news series so I have this podcast for news obviously but I want to make a series that I do once a week where I pick one or two big news stories and summarize what they are and my thoughts of it as quick as possible and I would upload it to YouTube and BitChute and Odyssey and all those platforms and that would just let people who don't have the time to really pay attention to news or they don't like news but they still want to know what's happening they'll at least know what the more uh the biggest topics of news are. And for this week, that'll probably be the mask mandate and the stuff going on in Middle East, like we're going to be getting into later in this episode. So I wanted to give that a shout out as well. And of course, you can find that at the Breakdown with Burkadol for my YouTube or the Breakdown with WB for my other platforms on BitChute and Odyssey. Now that we got all that out of the way, we can get into the podcast for today. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of things getting talk- talked about today, and I'm trying to, going to be covering them as best as I can with the knowledge I know of them. I am in no way an expert, but I think that's kind of the appeal of this podcast and what I talk about. It's more of a perspective from an everyday person and a college student. So you're able to get kind of a, like I said, an everyday man's perspective. I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I do think there's a big appeal. You, I don't necessarily think... It's, it's good to hear different opinions, and I'm not probably going to be always right on issues, and that is where I have my Twitter and Discord and live chat just to let me know when I'm not saying the right thing. Not that I don't want to say the right thing, but I obviously don't know everything, and I don't pretend like I know everything. So I just wanted to state that right off from the bat as we get into this first episode. So, 
Now that we have Joe Biden as president, many people are talking about um, Joe Biden himself. And some people say that, you know, Joe Biden is a quiet but radical agenda because he's trying to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yet nobody, yet the media is not really talking about what Biden is trying to do like they were with Trump. Anything, anytime Trump came in with a policy, an agenda, a topic, something he wanted to do, the media was all over it, regardless of whatever it was. Such as with North Korea when he met Kim Jong-un. The media turned that in to be a horrible thing, and some media turned it in to be an okay thing, and other media turned it, in, turned it to be a good thing. But when you think of mass media and you think of the media you generally hear about and you hear people talking about they perceived it to be a bad thing and we're not necessarily going to be talking about that but we definitely see a completely different approach when it comes to how the media is covering president joe biden to the former president of donald trump and we're seeing this continue because now the New York Attorney uh, General and a couple of others are launching an investigation into Trump's companies. Not an investigation of uh, when he was president and maybe using his companies for a B, C, or D, but a criminal investigation to the actual Trump organization and Trump companies. And we're going to be listening to this short 30-second clip of talking about this before we get in to our first articles. So before I keep blabbering on and on and on, we'll get right into this video. We are following breaking news tonight. The New York State Attorney General is investigating the Trump Organization in a quote criminal capacity. Manhattan District One second, we're gonna start this over. Let's make sure we get our volume good. All right, here we go. We are following breaking news tonight. The New York State Attorney General is investigating the Trump Organization in a, quote, criminal capacity along with the Manhattan District Attorney. In a statement, the Attorney General for New York wrote, quote, we have informed the Trump Organization that our investigation into the organization is no longer purely civil in nature. We are now actively investigating the Trump Organization in a criminal capacity along with the Manhattan DA. The Trump Organization declined to comment. We'll continue to follow the latest both on air and online at cbsmiami.com. So there you heard it. They're launching a investigation into Trump's uh, into Trump's companies and a criminal investigation. As I've said before, that is a huge thing and something that needs to be uh, emphasized because uh, they come with different uh, approaches to it. Just a simple investigation like when Trump wasn't president and potentially going to be impeached and what and whatnot is different than what they're trying to do here. So we're going to get into our articles here so that we can learn about what some of those differences are uh, for uh, the comp for Trump's company. If I can get this over, there we go. <laughs> Alrighty, so as we wait for this first article to load, this is by the NBC News, and it states here, New York's AG office opens criminal probe into Trump's organization. The New York Attorney General Office said Tuesday that it is pursuing a criminal investigation into the Trump Organization in addition to the ongoing civil probe. So that's the word I was keep trying to think of. It couldn't come to mind, but civil is what I was thinking about because a civil investigation is different than a criminal investigation. Criminal investigations in a large part have to show intent and have to show uh, 
meaning to to what has happened. Civil allegations and civil lawsuits are much more at a personal base for what has to happen, uh, such as if someone ran into your fence uh, that was your neighbor, you would be able to charge a civil lawsuit to get them to pay you money to repair that fence, and that's a civil charge. So civil is a lot more different than, say, you shooting somebody because now you face a criminal lawsuit. I think people generally understand the difference between civil and criminal, but there is a very large uh, distinction between the two, and a criminal uh, investigation into a company is a lot different than a civil investigation into a company. But we're going to continue on here. We have informed the Trump Organization that our investigation into the organization is no longer purely civil in nature. We are now already investigating the Trump Organization in a criminal capacity, along with the Manhattan DA, the district attorney. We have no additional comment at this time. Attorney General Leanna James has been at the forefront of legal action against former President Donald Trump's family business. The Trump's organization... The Trump, yeah, the Trump Organization investigation stemmed from allegations made by Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, who alleged he testified to Congress in 2019 that Trump had deliberately provided inaccurate uh, valuations of assets in official documents. NBC News has previously reported citing a source familiar with an investigation. So again, we get a little bit of insight to the criminal charge that they are uh, believing Trump are, are therefore Trump's company are both for uh, being behind. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this has a lot to do with tax taxes of the business and has a lot to do with reporting accurate numbers as we just read. So it would be a issue of accounting and potentially maybe money laundering or potentially... Uh, I'm forgetting the word, but basically lying about your numbers is a charge and there is a word for it. And that appears to be kind of what they're uh, investigating Trump's companies for doing. Tax write-offs is another one. And if you do something to have a tax write-off, that's not illegal. But if you twist something or you illegally do something to achieve a tax write-off, then it becomes illegal in nature. But the idea of a tax write-off is not illegal illegal. So I, that's also a interesting thing. But I have in no way an accounting major or in no way a legal expert when it comes to these things. But that's my general understanding of what's going on here, that it more has to do with the books and an accounting of the company. And they believe to have found issues in, within the money lines of Trump's uh, organization. But we're going to continue on here. The Trump organization, organization investigation stemmed from allegations, oh, I think we already read that, inaccurate assets, yeah, we read that. Uh, James' years-long probe into Trump's charitable foundation led to its dissolution in 2018. More recently, her investigation into whether Trump's business had inflated the value of assets for the purposes of tax breaks and loans came to head in October with Eric Eric Trump, the president's son, had an exclusive had an executive at his business set for a pre-election dis, dis, de, deposition. Excuse me, deposition set for a pre-election deposition. So once again, the article kind of uh, 
the article kind of said what I've already uh, believed it to be, and I think it's just stemming off of a previous investigation and off of a previous point that Trump was getting investigated for, for I believe the first impeachment, maybe the second impeachment, or for that matter, both impeachments. But I do remember his uh, son uh, being in the news um uh, being in the news when he met with that executive and being able to, uh, a lot of times, let's put it this way, a lot of times businesses will donate to charities and if you want to take it as a very cynical perspective of why a business would do that is because of tax write-offs and also probably good PR and getting a tax write-off with good PR is very good for your company. That's two things that very much benefit you as a company. If you want to take a more uh, optimistic viewpoint of why businesses sometimes give large numbers to um, to uh, these charities is because of the good nature and good PR. So, you know, PR kind of goes over both, but uh, a lot of people believe that businesses do this for one reason and one reason really only, and that is because of tax write-offs. And if you do it for a tax write-off, that's not necessarily a bad thing, as already mentioned. But if you lie about your numbers and do something to make it a tax write-off when it's not a tax write-off, are not a number that can achieve a tax write-off. In other words, if you lie about numbers just to achieve it, then you are doing something that is illegal. And I think that's kind of uh, the point here. But we're going to go on to our second article and read a little bit more about this Attorney General and Trump's investigation. Once it loads here. Alrighty, and this article is by CNN, and we're going to read... Uh, here, the New York Attorney General adds criminal capacity to probe of the Trump Organization. And some of this information is going to be repeated a little bit, but we're going to see if they have any other news to add to it. So the Attorney General's Office investigation into Trump's organization, which has been underway since 2019, will also continue as an ongoing civil probe, but the office recently informed Trump Organization officials of the criminal component. We have informed the Trump investigation that our investigation into the organization is no longer, we already read that statement, but I'm going to read it again, no longer purely civil in nature. We are now actively investigating the Trump Organization in a criminal capacity, as we've read before. James' office is working with the Manhattan District uh, DA, whose wide-sweeping probe into the Trump Organization has locked into whether the company mishandled lenders and insurance companies about the value of properties and whether it paid the appropriate taxes. So there we go. We get the uh, nature of what Trump was doing, not necessarily lying about assets or making up numbers to be able to achieve a tax write-off that may be uh, a necessary... Uh, uh, let's put it this way, that maybe part of what Trump has been doing are what has ha is happening with uh, the Trump organization. But there's also this charge here that states, and I'm going to read it again. James' office is working with the Manhattan District Attorney, whose widespread sweeping probe into the Trump Organization has looked into whether the company misled lenders and insurance companies about the value of properties and whether it paid the appropriate taxes. 
So that is the charges uh, that Trump could potentially be facing are what the investigation is about. We're going to read a little bit more here. A person familiar with the investigation said a couple of investigators with the New York Attorney General's office who are step, 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 steeped. Ugh, let's reread that again. You could do this. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but we're going to reread here. A person familiar with the investigation says that a couple of investigators with the New York Attorney General's office who are steeped in knowledge about the Trump Organization have joined the district attorney's team. A different person familiar with the matter said that the New York Attorney General is still conducting a civil investigation. So there we go again. And I am not necessarily a legal expert to know the exact differences when it comes to lying about numbers and comes to more accounting sentences that someone could face between civil and criminal. But from the basic understanding of how civil and criminal works is he could be, Trump could be facing criminal charges if these allegations are true because it's much more than a civil lawsuit because it shows intent in a larger way than just a potential accident that are are um, something that results in more of a civil charge. And maybe once we hear a little bit more about the particulars of this case and the particulars of Trump, I'll be able to talk a little bit more about the differences of civil and criminal. But this is something that has interested me a little bit. Uh, just because it seems to be going, as they said, a year-long investigation. But I think it's probably a much longer investigation into Trump's companies. And there's always been talk that Trump has been uh, lying about numbers to achieve tax write-offs and blah, 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 blah. I think that's always kind of been in the news. So this doesn't really necessarily surprise me. And I'm not sure if anything is necessarily going to come from it. But once again, it has made Trump back into the news cycle and a very heavy critique to what Trump has has done uh, with his organization or what his CEO has done in place of uh, Trump's organizations when he was president. We're going to go on to our next topic here. And uh, this is about Andrew Brown Jr.'s shooting. And I don't know if everybody necessarily knows the details of this shooting or not, but it was recently, uh, it was a recent shooting where uh, Andrew Brown Jr. had a lot of, and I'm just going to say Andrew Brown from now, but Andrew Brown had a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, charges against him and he was a drug dealer uh, selling cocaine that was also uh, had fentanyl in the cocaine as or was it heroin it was heroin or cocaine but a heavy drug that also had fentanyl in, in it as well and the police came as basically a SWAT unit and they went to uh, pass a warrant on him and to arrest uh, Andrew Brown. But it turned out that Andrew Brown was not wanting to be arrested, so he got into his car and tried to escape. And as he was escaping, he got shot at by a couple of officers and ended up dying from a shot wounds after crashing into a tree. 
And there's a large debate over if the police were right to shoot, if Michael or if Andrew Brown was right to do what he did. There's just a generally a huge debate about this. And there is a video that you can find, and I do have it linked in my description of this episode if you're listening to it live on Twitch, uh, YouTube, Trovo, or any of the other platforms. But I also will have it linked if you are listening to this as a podcast, and you will be able to watch that video to see for yourself the exact details of it but since this is a podcast I didn't really think that it would demonstrate too well to the listening audience and I'll try to explain it the best I could. So, if you do watch this video, as I mentioned before, it shows at the very beginning a police officer's in the back of this truck, you know, with, with heavy guns and heavy gear, riot gear essentially, or SWAT gear essentially, and they jump out of the back of this truck and start to run towards uh, Andrew Brown's house and car, and Andrew Brown, instead of putting his hands up and saying, okay, you can arrest me, you caught me, got into his car and started driving. And he drove very close to this one officer or two officers and almost ran them over. And since he charged at those officers, they started shooting because they saw it as an act of aggression instead of just, or they saw, yeah, they saw it as an act of aggression and him threatening their lives because he had a weapon being his vehicle charging at them. So they went ahead and shot and therefore killed Andrew Brown. So, as I said before, there is a lot of debate over if the officer should have shot or if Andrew Brown was justified in what happened or if Andrew Brown did the right thing. But we are going to be listening to the district attorney and his thoughts over this Andrew Brown shooting and if the cops were right or not. We're going to full screen this for our viewing audience and turn up the volume a little bit once it loads. And we'll give this a quick listen. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody for being here today. Once again, just as a form of introduction, my name is Andrew Womble. We're waiting the rise for in China is a positive development. We're getting an ad here. Sorry about that. Thank you, YouTube, for your 800,000 ads. But here we go again. For Judicial District 1 which is the seven counties of the Northeast. We're going to have this conference today. I have some prepared remarks that I'll be reading from. I have copies of those already prepared that you may pick up in the press packet. If you would like to have us email those to you, if you would supply us with an email, be happy. Wednesday, April 21st, 2021, Andrew Brown, Jr. of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, was shot and killed by three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office. This incident occurred at the residence of Mr. Brown, located at 421 Perry Street in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. After reviewing the investigation conducted by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, Mr. Brown's death, while tragic, was justified because Mr. Brown's actions caused three deputies with the Pasquotank I'm going to show that back again just so y'all can hear his exact words because this became a huge, huge, huge media story with the district attorney saying that his death was there, his death was tragic but justified. So we're going to listen to that again. Investigation 
Mr. Brown's death, while tragic, was justified because Mr. Brown's actions caused three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office to reasonably believe it was necessary to use deadly force to protect themselves and others. While the officer-involved shooting that resulted in the death of Andrew Brown occurred on Wednesday, April 21st, law enforcement involvement with Mr. Brown began in the weeks prior and put the wheels in motion that eventually led to the attempted service of arrest and search warrants on April 21, 2021. So he goes on to talk about the case itself, and if you do want to listen to this whole clip and what the district attorney said about this case, it is linked in the channel, or in the video description, or podcast description as well. But that was the major claim that the media was using about the district attorney saying that Michael Brown, or Andrew Brown, excuse me, that Andrew Brown Jr.'s death was justified. We're going to go to our first article kind of talking about the Justify claim and the shooting. And this article also has the video. So if you want to read about it and uh, uh, from a news article and also the video, it is in the CBC News article of this description of the episode. But we're going to go on to read what they have to say here. North Carolina Sheriff's deputies were justified in their fatal shooting of a black man in April because the man ignored their commands and drove his car directly at one of them before they fired any shots, a prosecutor said Tuesday. District Attorney Andrew Wobble said none of the deputies involved would be criminally charged in the fatal shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. The officers' actions were consistent with their training and fully supported under the law in protecting their lives and in a community, Wobble said during a press conference. The district attorney said that Brown used his car as a deadly weapon, causing the Pestoquake County deputies to believe it was necessarily to use deadly force. Wobble acknowledged Brown wasn't armed with guns or other weapons as deputies were trying to take him into custody while serving drug-related warrants at his house in Elizabeth City on April 20. First, as I mentioned earlier, he was a drug dealer and was in possession of heavy drugs. And that is why they had a warrant and wanted to arrest him. And because of his uh, criminal history, they were with with SWAT gear and not necessarily just in their regular police uniforms. One thing I also want to quickly mention here is... A lot of people have talked about why did the officer shoot, although he was driving a car at the police officer, or therefore police officers, and a car is largely considered a deadly weapon because of it being a car. I don't think many people would say that a car isn't a weapon when someone wants to do something bad in a car. Uh, That is why crashes are fatal after, you know, whatever. I think everybody understands that. But there's a big debate on this, and I think I even mentioned this beforehand on another case on my podcast. But there's a big part, a big debate about whether uh, you should fire at somebody in a car. Some counties and some districts or some precincts, whatever you want to call it, allow police officers to fire at a car because they believe that the chase a car could be in is more deadly than ending it right there or at least 
ceasing it to exist because even if you don't necessarily shoot to kill the person inside the car, you can cause the car to crash and maybe even save the driver's life. But if you get into a police chase, the outcome of that police chase could be a lot more deadly than the outcome of trying to end it before it escalates to a police chase. But other counties make the opposite thing, saying that shooting at a moving car or shooting at a car is more deadly than a police chase because the police have the motivation or police have the materials and police have the um the police have a plan to what happens with police chases and although some police chases do end up in shootings or do end up in a crash and the driver ends up dying there's also many cases where police chases don't end up that way and police are able to arrest the driver of who that police chase so it kind of goes both ways and if you believe people who are former cops are from my research of how this exactly works it just depends on what district you're a part of or what county you're a part of and what their rules are for what you are supposed to do in that situation. But also I want to mention that there's one other thing when it comes to something like this and a, somebody driving a car at you. Is the factor of human nature. The human nature, I think, is also something very big at this. Even if you are in a county that says that it's safer to not shoot at a moving car and to pursue the car in a chase, it's still human nature if a car is charging at you or charging in your general direction to shoot because you want to save your life and you want to save your other officer's life who are around you. So the idea of shooting at that car, I also think in a large way, is human nature as well. And I don't know the exact details of the county or the district that these police officers are in and if that shooting is justified. In other words, if they believe that shooting a car is safer than having a car uh, in a police chase. But I also wanted to throw that out there before we get into reading more in this article as we see here. In a statement, the Brown family attorney said Wobble was making an attempt to whitewash the unjustified killing. The bottom line is that Andrew was killed by a shot to the back of the head, the attorney said. In interestingly, one of the one of these issues were appropriately addressed in today's press conference. The prosecutor said he would not release body cam video of the confrontation between Brown and the law enforcement officers, but he played portions of the video during the news conference. The video came from four body cameras worn by deputies during the shooting. In the footage. Played by reporters, the deputies are seen jumping out of a jumping out of the back of a sheriff's office pickup truck as it pulls up to Brown's house. The deputies then rush towards Brown, who was in his car. And it goes on to talk more about the video, but once again, I, I think we kind of explained it well enough to be able to know the details of what exactly happened. And you can find this video that has been released very easily if you want to know more information about it. 
But I do want to mention one other thing before I move on here. There is a bill right now getting talked about in the North Carolina legislature about if they should release uh, the full body camera footage or the full video of this shooting. Because right now, as the article mentioned, it only released the video footage from a couple of the police officers' cams and not the whole scene or not all of the footage that could be released to show the full context of the situation so right now there's a big bill of in the le in the legislator to have this uh, to have situations like this to release the full video to give to the media sources and to give to the public to be able to know the full context of everything and to be able to learn and understand when it comes to those uh, proponents <laughs> And I do think that that would, would, would help a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, uh, misinformation when it comes to shootings, uh, like this, or, if, or situations like this. But it also could come with many, uh, other cons to it as well. We're gonna wait for our Fox News article to load here. North Carolina DA Andrew Brown Jr.'s death, tragic but justified, and this is by Fox News. Wapple, the elected district attorney for Judicial District 1, which covers seven counties of the northwest part of the state, said that Brown was shot by three deputies whose actions were justified because Brown actions. Brown's actions caused deputies to reasonably believe it was necessary to use force to protect themselves and others. Wobble began play playing four body camera videos during the press conference, which was broadcasted by several news outlets. Brown's ignored deputies' commands to stop and uh, Brown ignored deputies' commands to stop and began to drive his car directly at one of the officers. Wobble said. He said the first shot was fired at Brown's car, went through the front windshield, not the back, as was previously reported. Uh, and this is a uh, Twitter. Uh, this is the Twitter post by Brett Hall. It says hashtag breaking. In a new video, uh, County Sheriff Tommy Wadden says three deputies who fired upon Andrew Brown will keep their jobs, but they will be disciplined and restrained. And it goes on to a video uh, about what his comments were. During his press conference, Wobble said a deputy who tried to open Brown's car door wound up partly on the hood as Brown backed up and the deputy found himself directly in the car's path moments later when Brown drove forward. Wobble said the deputy had to push off the car with his hand to narrowly avoid being ran run over and Brown's vehicle made contact with, second, with a second law enforcement officer. And again, the video is regularly available for you to watch if you want to see the full context and understanding of this and come up with your own thoughts to this video and if the police officers were justified in shooting uh, Andrew Brown and therefore causing his death. I had a thought and it just left my mind, but it'll come back later. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. I find that the facts of this case clearly illustrates officers who use deadly force. We read about that. We read about that. 
And then it talks a little bit about the details leading up to the shooting, which we also kind of talked about a little bit earlier, because they did have reasons to believe that this could have been a deadly encounter, hence why they used uh, their SWAT gears in order to uh, hopefully uh, lead to a less situation and a safer arrest, although that wasn't the case and it turned out to be much deadlier than I think they were wanting it to be. This is our last article on this story by the New York Times. North Carolina prosecutor calls shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. justified. A slow motion review of the video by the New York Times shows Mr. Brown bearing to clip a deputy as he begins to drive in reverse. Mr. Brown then pulls forward through the same deputy trying to drive away between him and the second deputy. As he appears to be directing a car away from the deputy in front of him who briefly places his left hand on the hood of the car as an officer fires the first shot. According to the Times Review, the car does not appear to be moving particularly fast than a moments before the county sheriff deputies fired a total of 14 shots in his direction. Mr. Wobble's decision essentially closed the state-level criminal case, although a federal civil rights investigation is ongoing. Whether shooting is likely to continue, emanating unsettled questions about the police transparency and accountability in deadly encounters with African Americans. Mr. Brown, 42, was a slain just days after a jury found a Minneapolis police officer guilty of murdering George Floyd in the case he remained his family and many activists that uh, precautions of police shootings remained difficult to attain. In Mr. Brown's case, there was also an extended deadly... Uh, an extended delay before the release of the body and dash cam video of the shooting. The judge had rejected the sheriff's request to release the video, citing concerns that it would harm the investigation. In a news conference on Tuesday, we read about that. It clearly justifies blah, 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 blah. In a video statement on Tuesday by the sheriff, we were, were, uh, read about that. Uh, da, 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 da. Another... Another other issues, Mr. Watton said two of the deputies in the scene did not turn on their body cameras and a SWAT team that say, served the warrants did not have an emergency medical team nearby. This should have happened this way. It shouldn't have happened this way at all, the sheriff said. While the deputies did not break the law, we will all wish things could have been gone differently. Much differently. And I do think that that is something that we need to highlight here as well. Although the sheriffs may not have been a criminally charged. And may have not have been in wrong. By shooting because of the precinct or county rule. Or because it would, would be a self defense. Because the car is a weapon. There probably could have been a lot better way of handling the situation. That could have led to Andrew Brown not being shot and not being killed in this incident. But we can all see uh, hindsight. And hindsight is always going to look a lot better than what actually happened in real time. But I'll continue reading just a little bit more. We did not see any actions on Mr. Brown's part where he made contact with them or tried to go in their direction. Chance D. Lynch, a lawyer for the family, said earlier this month after he had reviewed about 20 minutes of the recordings. In fact, he did just the opposite. Mr. Waddle did not release all the roughly two-hour footage on Tuesday. 
saying that this was within his power to do so. Instead, he showed brief snippets during the news conference in which his own, which, in which he gave his own analysis of the encounter. He said an official autopsy showed that Mr. Brown was shot twice, including the head, during an interaction that took a total of 44 seconds. The forensic pathologist found a bag with a substance containing what is believed to be crystal meth in Mr. Brown's mouth, Mr. Wobble said. Prosecutors said that when Mr. Brown put his car in reverse, Sergeant Joe Lansford, who had his hand on the driver's side car door handle, was pulled over the hood of Brown's vehicle, where his body and his safety equipment were struck by the vehicle. Mr. Brown said that Mr. Wobble, excuse me, said that Mr. Brown ignored deputies' commands to stop, continued to back up, and put his car in drive. At the point where Sergeant Lansford was directly in front of the vehicle, Mr. Wobble said, and Mr. Brown drove directly over him. So once again, we hear the same sort of information and same sort of analysis of this video. And the video is regularly available to watch yourself if you choose to do so. And I would if you want to be able to take your own, uh, uh, your own thoughts of this case. And there's also, I remember what I was going to say earlier, some people have complained about the amount of shooting the officers did at the car, that it was a uh, excessive amount. And I think that also kind of goes back to the human nature. Uh, if someone is driving at you or driving in your general direction and you see it as a self-defense, you are probably going to fire your weapon. And I have heard that I was only around four of the officers that were firing their guns and the others were not firing their guns and just kind of assessing the situation and making sure, you know, nobody else tried to uh, interfere with their, uh, with their arrest or shooting of Mr. Brown or Andrew Brown. But I think that it's also that, but you could argue that training should make the officers a little less eager to fire the gun, even in a situation like that. But again, I do think that hindsight is, is always going to look a lot better than the actual stuff that happened in the moment, and the actual crime of the moment, and the actual uh, event that happened. Hindsight is almost always going to look a little bit better. But we're going to go to our next episode, our next, uh, our next uh, topic, if I can think, uh, here. And this is over the major conflict that is happening in the Middle East between Palestine and Israel and the strikes in Gaza and many other strikes elsewhere. And, and we're going to listen to this uh, video by BBC, kind of breaking down the story just a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and full screen this once again for our live viewing audience, and we'll get right on to listening. The deadly conflict between Israeli forces and Palestinian militants led by Hamas is entering its second week, and there is little sign of a political or diplomatic breakthrough. United Nations Security Council still can't agree on a formal joint statement. Today there were clashes between Palestinian protesters and Israeli security forces in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Our Middle East editor Jeremy Bowen reports now from Jerusalem and there are some distressing images uh, in the report. The Israeli army blew up the car of a man who attacked them with grenades. Soldiers shot him dead. It was the center of Hebron where soldiers protected Jewish settlement Looks like we're going to have an ad again. Oh, no, here we go. City. 
Last night, a group called the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade showed off their weapons in Ramallah on the West Bank. They have been quiet since the end of the last armed uprising around 16 years ago. Their return, if that's what it is, is a sign of the hardening mood on the Palestinian side and competition between rival factions to confront Israel. This morning, the Al-Aqsa Brigade and Israeli troops exchanged fire near Ramallah. The Israelis said two of their soldiers were wounded. This was at the Damascus Gate into Jerusalem's old city. Egypt blames heavy-handed Israeli pressure in Jerusalem for what it calls Palestinian retaliation. The Egyptians have used unusually harsh language to condemn Israel's behavior. That matters because Egyptian mediators are a critical part of ceasefire negotiations. Much more anger in more places is on display in the Palestinian territories than during previous wars between Israel and Hamas. This was Bethlehem, just outside Jerusalem. This kind of thing just doesn't build up overnight. It comes after years of settlement expansion, land confiscation. What happened in Jerusalem and what's happening in Gaza was the last straw. It's about, for these people, years of Israeli pressure. Inside Israel, Jaffa is shared by Jews and Palestinian Arabs. Arab businesses across Israel were closed in a general strike that was also solid on the West Bank. In the last week, coexistence between Israel's Arab and Jewish citizens has broken down, a disaster for national cohesion. Hamas is still hitting Israeli towns. This was Ashdod. All the pounding of Gaza, this was an American-made Israeli bomb, has not stopped Hamas firing back. That could be an incentive for Israel to respond to pressure from its allies for a ceasefire. Jeremy Bowen, BBC News, Jerusalem. So there we go, hearing it from the BBC, and it showed many of the actual conflict that isn't necessarily going to be uh, super easy to understand as the podcast, but I think we all kind of have seen missile strikes before, or at least bombings like this before, and you can definitely find video clips of this in uh, YouTube and elsewhere if you are curious to know some of what the video footage was showing there. But in general, I wanted to play this whole clip because I thought they showed a very good uh, progression of many places that are getting uh, bombed or having or have having riots or have having shootings at the different nationalities of the people in more than just one or two locations. And uh, it, it is a very, very bad conflict of what's happening. And it's very interesting to see that depending on what your political ideology is, is the perspective that you have and who you side with on your perspective. Excuse me. If you're a Christian or if you're somebody who's more right-leaning, 
you're probably siding with Israel on this perspective and uh, trying to stop this conflict and Israel not necessarily being in the wrong. But if you're someone that's a lot more left-leaning or maybe Muslim or, or just not Christian or whatever you want to say, you might be siding a lot more with Palestine and their conflict and how they view the perspective and how they view maybe the terrorists who are striking Israel as a good or bad thing and this conflict isn't a recent conflict now what's happening now is recent this has ha been happening over the past couple of days and it's probably happening potentially as you are listening to this podcast now but there's also been happening for many, 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 many years of Israel versus Palestine or Palestine versus Israel or this Middle East conflict that is happening. And I am not a expert on this situation by any means. And I'm really just kind of giving my basic understanding of what's happening here. But you could search on YouTube, uh... Conflict in Israel and Palestine. Conflict in Israel and Palestine. What caused the Israel and Palestine conflict? Why is there Israel-Palestine conflict? You know, all of these different titles on YouTube. And you can get videos going back from six, eight, nine years ago. Uh, about talking about this very thing, what's happening. And we're just seeing another situation for why this conflict is happening once again and happening at a much greater rate. Because these rockets are being fired into Israel and into places where actual civilians are and not targeting, say, hotels or targeting homes of political leaders or in the case of Israel's striking, striking Palestine where the terrorists are, but rather striking actual civilians and civilian houses. So it is becoming a much more attack in general, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these rockets are getting fired into these civilian centers and into civilian places. And beforehand, these rockets would largely get shot down in Israel by their defense system. And they, the, the, the terrorist and, uh, organization that's responsible for many of the rockets and many of the attacks in Israel and in Israel cities is getting, they're launching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these rockets and many of them are getting past the anti-air uh, defense because this defense isn't uh, designed to shoot down hundreds of rockets but only to shoot down a couple of rockets that are in its airspace. So many of these rockets are getting by and there has been many, many, many instances of civilians getting being killed or severely injured and not necessarily just political leaders and people that would be responsible in quotations here for this conflict on both sides and it is a there is a general debate so Israel was to fire first largely because of the terrorist organization responsible for it and many people, if you were to listen to, say, the Ben Shapiro show, or many of the right-leaning perspectives say that Israel now has a responsibility to defend themselves against these attacks past their anti-air defense, since many of these rockets and many of these missiles, or whatever you want to call it, are getting past their air defense. And the idea of just sitting back and letting 
letting it happen as a nation is irresponsible because as a nation, you have the core responsibility to defend your nation and to defend your people that live within your borders and make sure that they are safe. So if you believe Ben Shapiro and a lot of the right-leaning perspective on this issue, Israel is justified in firing back at Palestine. Well, we're going to go ahead and read NPR here where it says Representative uh, Tlaib pushes Biden to protect at-risk Palestines in the Middle East conflict. In a notable traumatic conversation, Michigan Representative Rashab Tlaib con- con- convinced, conveyed, sorry, conveyed to President Biden her dis- dissatisfaction with the United States' response to bloody conflict between Israel and her- Hamas that has now entered its second week. Hamas is that organization I am talking about. To leave the first woman of Palestinian descent to serve in Congress, also told Biden that Palestinians must be protected, and she shared her harsh assessment of Israel's role in escalating the violence. And an aide for the Congresswoman's office said in the statement, their conversation came after Biden landed in Detroit Tuesday ahead of his visit to Ford's Rogue Electric Vehicle Center in nearby Dearborn. As a global pressure mounts for Israel and Hamas to call a truce in their fighting. Uh, Dearborn is home to a sizable Arab American population, and protesters took to the streets Tuesday in a city to support uh, for Palestine. <clears throat> Palestinian human rights are a bargaining chip that must be protected, not negotiated, the aid for Tlaib expressed to Biden. The U.S. cannot continue to give the right-wing Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu government billions each year to commit crimes against Palestinians. Uh, aristocrats like bombing schools cannot be tolerated, much less conducted with U.S.-supplied weapons. And it reported this week the United States is conducting an arms sale to Israel worth some of $735 million, a deal that, su- caught, uh, that caught several Washington lawmakers off guard and probably caused the heart to sell until a ceasefire is reached. Congressman Tlaib reiterated that the status quo is enabling more killing than the current U.S. approach of the unconditional support for the Israeli government is not working and that the White House must do far more to protect Palestinian lives, uh, dignity, and human rights, the aide said. Tlaib remarks to the president echoed in an impassioned speech he delivered on the House floor last week, in which he called the interpreted and racism she said had been escalated on the Palestinian by the by the Israel government. So once again, you have Rashid Tlaib, who is a Palestinian, uh, uh, pushing for a more pro-Palestinian approach by President Biden and by the American government itself. It is interesting to note that uh, for under former uh, President Donald Trump, that we sided with Israel in a lot more cases, and the conflict between Israel and Palestine was largely not that great, was largely not uh, a huge conflict that gained news like it has now because of the numerous deaths and numerous missile strikes that are happening. But under 
President Biden, we are now seeing this conflict continue. And once again, if you believe people like Ben Shapiro and you believe more of the right-leaning perspective on this, it is because President Biden hasn't backed Israel as strongly as President or as strongly as former President uh, Donald Trump, and has more sided with Palestine or sided with more of a pro-Palestine approach than say a pro-Israel approach. Although Israel is an ally. And there is that uh, perspective as well. Well, we're going to take a quick drink break as we wait for this Reuters article to load. Okay. So this is by the Reuters and it says, Ward powers urge truce as the Israel-Palestine conflict rages. Israel-born Gaza, with airstrikes and Palestine militants, resumed cross-border rocket fire on Tuesday after a brief of overnight lull, during which the UN sent a small fuel convoy to the enclave, where it says 52,000 people are now displaced. <clears throat> Israel leaders said that they were pressing on with an offense to destroy the, ca the capabilities of the armed factions Hamas and Islamic Aimed calls by United States and other war powers for the end of the conflict. Excuse me. Two dive workers were killed and seven people were wounded in a rocket strike on an Israel farm just over the Gaza border. Police said Gaza ruling Hamas Islamic group and Islamic Jihad claimed responsibility. Rockets are also launched at the cities of Ashad and former north, and I apologize if I am not saying those names right. Gaza president said Israel was keeping up intense airstrikes. Witnesses said an Israel tank shell hit a paint factory in the southern Gaza Strip, setting it on fire. We will continue as long as it takes in order to restore calm for all of Israel's citizens, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Nehathu reformating remarks he has made over the past several days said in a video clip on Twitter. One other thing, I am sure that all of our enemies around us, the price we are exciting for aggression against us, and I am certain that they will all have absorbed that lesson, he said, speaking in the airbase hangar with a weather plane behind him. Hamas began firing rockets eight days ago in retaliation for what it said were Israel's rights abuses against Palestinians in Jerusalem during the Muslim Holy Month of uh, uh, Ramadan. The current hospitalities are most serious between the militant group in Israel in years, and the departure from previous Gaza conflicts has helped to fuel violence in Israel cities between Jews and Arabs. And we're going to get into some of the numbers of deaths between each uh, group here of uh, people who have died and buildings that have been targeted from this attack. And as you saw there, they give a potential reasoning for why Hamas and uh, and uh, uh, radical Islamic groups were targeting Israel once again. And that was because they had an attack on one of the more holy days. And that is a reason as to why some people say more on the left side of media are blaming uh, Israel for at least making this conflict be a more of a potential to happen than, say, in the past.
So before we get into the numbers, I did want to point that out. Uh, I did want to point that out because I do think it's important to view both perspectives when it comes to this conflict. And I'm much more, myself in my bias, much more to believe Israel's side on this and to believe what has happened there for many other reasons besides what we have already read. But I do want to make sure I throw that out there. But I do think that regardless of what side you're on, I do think that coming to a middle ground, as was mentioned by the United Nations in an earlier article, if it takes the United Nations to do so and come up with a peace treaty or whatever it might be, I think we now have a major reason to pursue that again and to make sure that we end this conflict that has happened for Almost, I think you could. I think you could say it has happened for a decade, and you would be very safe with saying so. But we're going to go on to read about some of the deaths and targeting of buildings that have happened from this conflict already. Gaza medical officials say 215 Palestinians have been killed, including 61 children and 36 women, and more than 1,400 wounded. Israeli authorities say 12 people have been killed in Israel, including two children. Nearly 450 buildings in the Gaza Strip have been destroyed or badly damaged, including six hospitals and nine primary care health centers. The United Nations humanitarian agency said sub-47,000 of the 52,000 displaced had fled to UN schools. Israel said more than 3,450 rockets have been launched at it, at it from Gaza, some falling short and others shot down by its Iron Dome air defenses. On Tuesday, the army, says, the army said a soldier was slightly injured when a shell was fired after it allowed a full convey into Gaza. Or Gaza sorry. It says its forces have killed 130 Hamas fighters and another 30 from the Islamic Jihad. And if you do want to see some pictures, you can read this Rudder's article that is in the podcast description where it has several pictures in a slideshow. Uh, in a slideshow. Now it's going to talk a little bit about casefire cause, and we'll see this here. On Twitter, uh, Nethamathu said Israel's attacks against Gaza militants had set Hamas back in many years, which some Israeli news commentators took as possible prelude to a ceasefire within days when he, when he could claim a victory. But Omas Yahan, a former Israeli military intelligence chief, said that the picture was more complicated, civil, civil, citing civil unrest in Israel, mounting protests by, Palestine, by Palestinians, the occupied West Bank, and a trickle of rocket fire from Lebanon. As far as Hamas is concerned, what's happening in the West Bank, and maybe the Lebanese group, and the Israeli and Arab citizens, this is where it is won, Yuman said on Channel 12 TV in a military game they have lost. I'm going to take a quick drink break here. Okay. So again, we talk a little bit about some ceasefire claims and a potential treaty to be made. But if you do believe many of the clips you can find on news talking about the situation... 
both parties haven't said the nicest things about each other and a potential conflict of this increasing or becoming much bigger is possible or at least not stopping because both parties don't seem to really be wanting to back down when it comes to their rhetoric over this situation. But this next article is by Politico. U.S. hoped avert Israeli ground invasion of Gaza. Hopes rise conflict could could end soon. The Biden administration is increasingly hopeful that the deadly conflict between Israel and Palestine militants is in its final stage, and the U.S. officials are confident their mostly behind-the-scenes intervention helped avert an early Israeli group invasion of the Gaza Strip. American officials have privately urged historian Prime Minister Benjamin Nahathu and his aides to wind down the country's operations against the Gaza Strip. <clears throat> which have included airstrikes and killed more than 200 Palestinians. A person familiar with the situation told Politico on Tuesday, Nawathu recently said that a few days of fighting lie ahead, according to the hopes that an end is near. The U.S. has also helped facilitate diffusions between an Egyptian officials and both sides of the conflict, including Hamas, a U.S designated terrorist group that controls Gaza has been killed at least 10 Israelis throughout uh, rocket fire over the past week. There are signs that Hamas is looking for a way out of the uh, right out of the conflict. <clears throat> the situation remains unpredictable and if either side decides to ramp up its activity and any effort to craft a lasting ceasefire could collapse. That being said, the Biden administration and others already are looking at ways to send humanitarian assistance to Gaza, a densely packed seaside territory of 2 million people. The end may come in stages with initial pauses of rocket and missile exchanges to allow for humanitarian aid before a final end of the violence the in-person said. On Monday, Army General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, convinced a sense of urgency when he warned that the longer the conflict drags on, the more risk of destabilizing the region. It's in no more interest to continue fighting, Milley said. So there is generally a lot of conflict that is happening in the Middle East. And a lot of people have argued that maybe the United States needs to step back and just let the nations uh, come to peace in their own terms. But many people have also argued that this is not a way to solve the problem and that the U.S. should become more involved to be able to find a solution for both, for both nations. And I do think that both come with their pros and cons, and it will be interesting to see if this conflict will be able to resolve itself between the two nations, or if it will take someone like the United States or uh, other foreign powers to come in and get involved to solve the conflict uh, with them or for them, so to speak. But if history has anything to say with the situation that's happening in the Middle East, they won't reach a joint uh, situation between both of them. And this conflict will continue to happen and missile strikes will continue to happen. Maybe not in weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They may take a break, but the conflict itself will not be resolved and will continue to happen. And I do think that that is very sad. 
Because regardless of what side you view this perspective on, you would think that both sides would want to be able to come up with some sort of solution to solve this problem between the Palestinians and Israelis and come to peace with uh, both of the nations and to live uh, not in war or to live and not being afraid that a missile strike or a rocket strike or whatever you call it could potentially happen next day or even the day that you wake up in but it like i said before if history has anything to say this conflict won't be resolved and it will continue to happen so we're going to go to our next uh topic here and we got a little bit of a video here and i don't think we're going to be playing this uh full video uh but we will play part of it. And this is with Kevin McCaffrey. He says he opposes the January 6th commission. And this is a commission to investigate the rioters that uh, raided the Capitol building on that faithful day. But we're going to go ahead and listen to what this article has to say. Or not this article. Uh, what this video has to say about Kevin McCaffrey's claims of the January 6th uh, commission and news uh, post from CNN. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy just announced he will not support a 9-11 style commission to study the Capitol insurrection or investigate it. He wrote, quote, given the political misdirections that have marred this process, given the now duplicative and potentially counterproductive nature of this effort, and given the speaker's short-sighted scope that does not examine interrelated forms of political violence in America, I cannot support this legislation. Legislation, by the way, that was negotiated by a Republican, John Katko of New York. Back with us again, Gloria Borger. Uh, so, Gloria, there you have it. McCarthy's against it. I think it's, it's a complete abdication of his political responsibility, of his responsibility to history, and to uh, every person in this country who needs to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. Not only is it an abdication, but he also threw his own person, uh, Congressman Katko, a Republican, who negotiated this in good faith with Democrats so they could come up with a way to do an investigation. YouTube is crazy with ads. Sorry about that, but we'll go ahead and give my thoughts as we wait for this ad to play through. So, in large part, this January 6th event, depending on what political aisle you're on, either being Republican or Democrat, comes with your perspective on this event. And I think that can be said with many other political events that happen in uh, especially United States politics and ideas from it. If you're a Republican, and when I say you're Republican, I mean like a very, very, very Republican, you probably think, or you could say Trumpian, you probably think that what happened with uh, the people raiding the Capitol building wasn't really a bad thing. Maybe it wasn't necessarily justified, but the people really shouldn't be investigated and have their lives ruined because of it. If you're a Democrat, and if you want to say progressive, if you want to go the far end like I did with the Republicans, then you think that these people should be investigated and, and charges should be faced because this was a historic event. And because this was such a historic event, and we need to make sure that our capital is kept in prestigious condition and kept as the deep building that Americans view it as, we need to make sure we keep it pure. We need to make sure we keep the government pure and something like this should never ever ever happen again then you are probably going to be for the commission but as the cnn uh 
uh, content or not content creators. I guess they are content creators, but as the CNN News um, clip is saying, that a they're a Republican working with Democrats to come up with this commission should be something that we should be able to cross aisles with, and we should be able to understand each other, and we should be able to come to a common ground. And that is kind of the approach they're taking. Yet the McCaffrey comes out and says that he is not in support for what is happening with this commission and why he doesn't necessarily see it as a good thing. But we're going to go ahead and let it play for a little bit longer and get more of their views on this. And in saying he doesn't support it, he's saying to Republicans, okay, go out and say whatever you want about it. And we know that just last week, there were Republicans who were out there saying that the insurrection was effectively a walk in the park by a bunch of tourists. It gives them permission to keep telling these lies. He's trying to... So the idea about it being a walk in the park is something I've also heard quite a bit, uh, quite a bit a lot. I, or, that's not a that's not a sentence. I've heard I've heard about that a lot. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And uh, one of the things I hear is that it was a selfie fest. You know, they didn't do anything illegal. They just went into the building and took a whole bunch of selfies, and that's all they really did. And I could see how some people would believe it, and some people want it. Blah 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 blah. This whole event really just depends on what your political leaning is. And I think that that is a large part to all of American politics. And I don't necessarily think that that is a good thing either. But um, I don't necessarily certainly think that what they're saying here is 100% true either. I don't think it's as simple as they're making it out to be. Because if you're going to do something like a 9-11 type of commission to the people who raided into the Capitol, you need to make sure you have reasons for doing so. And really, I don't know if I necessarily have heard good enough reasons for why an investigation like that should happen. And I'm definitely willing to hear them, but I just haven't heard good enough reasons for why something like that should happen. But we're going to just let this play a little bit longer here. Gloria, pretend in a way that this didn't happen, that it's not something that warrants really an investigation, which is what many Republicans believe. He talks about there being misdirections. The misdirections are coming from his party. Right. It, and it's just an excuse. You know, it's an excuse. It's an excuse to say we don't, you know, we don't want to look back. Every time we talk about January 6th, it's not good for us Republicans. Um, and maybe McCarthy could be subpoenaed, for example, right. to talk about his conversation with Donald Trump that day. Yeah, exactly. That's a real. There we go. That's we heard it from her himself. I don't have anything else to say on that. <laughs> I do think that people are, are, you could say, putting too much thought into it. But you could also argue that people aren't putting too much thought into it. So it's a very weird situation when it comes to this capital right. And I still think that there is a large debate on on the motivations behind both. And uh, that's an interesting thing. Real quick, we're going to have to sneeze. Sorry about that. Wanted to make sure you didn't hear that on our camera here. I think that would be very, uh, not a pleasant sound you would want to hear. <laughs> anyway, but we'll read our first article about this whole event. And this is by the great Yahoo News. Actually, we're going to go to 
Oh, we'll read it. We'll read it. One second here. Okay, here we go. And it states here, uh, McCarthy's rejection of Capitol Riot Committee is pathetic, Democratic loyal lawyers. Excuse me, and this looks to be originally posted by Rudders and posted again on Yahoo News. Let me end this autoplay. All right, here we go. Alien Piss, uh, Massachusetts Representative James McGovern said at a, at a committee meeting, McGovern hold up a copy of the letter. Rep- our letter Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCaffrey sent to Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that morning, that morning, saying that he would not support a measure creating a national commission of experts to investigate the deadly attack on Congress by supporters of former President Donald Trump. I guess that what's frustrating to me, McGovern continued, is that this doesn't seem to be a disagreement over substance or or other policy, but I don't think this is an issue of character, and this isn't an issue of of fitness to lead. McGovern suggested McCaffrey was cow-towing to pressure from Trump. The bill before the rule committee was crafted jointly by Minneapolis Democrat Representative Benny Thompson and New York Republican Representative John Cato and would create a body modeled after the 9-11 Commission which investigated the 2001 terror attacks. The Capitol rampage came after Trump gave an incendiary speech to his followers repeating his false claims of a stolen election. In his aftermath, Republicans have tried to downplay the severity of the attack and distance themselves and the former president from its perpetrators. Some Republicans have asked a proposed commission to explain to investigate other forms of political violence and demonstrations, including the protest against police brutality that rolled some cities over the summer of 2020. Others have claimed the deadly capital riot was not an insurrection, and that's kind of the major claim that we have going here. Uh, really, the claim that I've heard the most is that people don't really think that what happened in the capital riots and what happened in January 6 wasn't a big enough event to uh, come up with a commission to spend a massive amount of dollars to investigate people that simply walked into the building and took selfies. But you could definitely have an opposite perspective on that as well. You could definitely see that an event and what happened like this should be investigated so that it doesn't happen again and that the people should be charged responsibly for their actions and having a commission like this would make it a lot easier to come up with proper uh, sentences for the people. So once again, there are both perspectives and depending on what you think and what you align with most likely your political link meaning uh, right or left is how you view this approach. But we're going to also read one more story on this issue by The Hill. White House backs bill establishing the January 6th commission. The White House warmly backed a bill to establish a 9-11 style commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol House after Minority Leader Kevin McCaffrey said he won't support the legislation. In a statement of the administrative policy released Tuesday, the White House called the Capitol attack an un 
unperpetrated assault on their democracy in an effort to undo the will of the American people and threaten the peaceful transition of power. While the federal government has already begun taking action to improve the safety and security of the U.S. Capitol, the administration supports the proposed uh, bipartisan independent national commission to study and investigate the facts and circumstances surrounding the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. That should be 2020. I think they got that date wrong, but we understand what they're saying here. Anyway. The uh, support comes one day ahead of a House vote on the bipartisan legislation. Tuesday morning, McCaffrey said in a statement that he wouldn't support the bill, arguing it was too narrowly focused on the January 6th attack that led the commission should also look at left-leaning protesters from over the summer and even the 2017 shooting at a Republican baseball practice. The presence of his political violence in American society cannot be tolerated and it cannot be overlooked, McCaffrey wrote in his statement. Under the bill, the commission would include 10 members with experience in law enforcement and national security backgrounds, with each party appointing five lawmakers. And it's a key decision for one of the earliest proposals from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, which would have created an 11th member committee with seven members appointed by Democrats compared to just four by Republicans. The legislation also addressed another sticking point, allowing subpoenas with both of the chair and voice chair of the commission's agree or by vote a majority of the commissioners' renders. So the idea of this commission would be to either find charges for these people of capital rioters or to come up with a way to reduce crime and to figure out maybe the motivations to why an event like this happened. And as we read earlier from McCaffrey, the minority leader of the House, I believe it's the House, he was arguing that if you want to investigate political uh, crimes and uh, and protesters for uh, both. If you're going to do something like that, you need to make sure you do it for both sides. So if you're going to do it for for Republicans and a January 6th riot, then you also need to do it for Democrats and the baseball shooting and Black Lives Matter protest during uh, the George Floyd incident and so on. And I do think that there is some points to that with being more the fair is fair type of approach but the main idea is just the uh, committee on January 6th. And as I've already said a couple of times now, depending on where you align politically, it's probably going to be where you align on having a commission like that. We're going to go to this one story I have uh, for this topic, and then we'll go to our last topic of uh, the mask and the CDC. But our first topic before that is with the hate crime bill to fight Asian Americans discrimination. And it finally passed the House, and now it is finally passed and is going to go to Biden's desk. Excuse me. One more drink. So we all know that with COVID-19 and many people saying that it's come out of Wuhan, China, and China was responsible for the virus and blah, 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 all these claims we've been hearing about, 
many people have been angered, and some people who look at uh, Asian, Asian Americans, are just Asian people in general, and see them as bad guys in this whole situation. And it's a very artificial, very stupid stance to take. If you think that uh, this virus did come out of China, and you know that for certainty, it doesn't really make sense to blame it on Chinese people that live in America. So taking that jump and taking that, that idea and, and escalating it just doesn't make any sense at all. But it has happened, and it has happened in really San Francisco the most. That's the most public incidence of what happened, mainly because the district attorney in a large part isn't willing to charge the people who are responsible for pushing over older Asian men and women and because of them being African American or in some cases even whites doing it. But taking race out of it, even though it is a hate crime if you believe the bill, which you could see why it could be led uh, to the bill. But anyway, there's largely happened in San Francisco and some other states where people have taken their anger out on Asians. And really their only motivation for doing so was because they had a hatred for Asian Americans or Asian people because of the coronavirus. So they made a hate bill that went to the house and according to this headline went to the senate and is now going to go to biden's desk to sign so we're going to read this article by usa today for more than a year, reports of hate incidents against Asian Americans have drastically climbed. Legislation meant to combat that attacks and racism is headed to President Joe Biden's desk for a signature after fa passing a final vote in the House. It went for advocates in the Asian Americans and Pacific Islander community. The House passed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act 364-62, which would expedite the Justice Department review of hate crimes and designate an official at the department to over see the effort. Representative Judy, chair of the Congressional Asian and Pacific American Caucus, said in a news conference Tuesday that after a year in which we have seen 6,600 reported anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents and after a year of Asian American community crying for help, today Congress is taking historic action to pass a long overdue hate crime legislation. These innocents have terrified the Asian American community, she said after a mass shooting in Georgia in March that killed eight people, six of whom were women of Asian descent. Lawmakers in both chambers of Congress called for a quick action over the legislation. May is Asian American, or sorry, May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. The bill passed the Senate in April with an overwhelming bipartisan vote of 94 to 1, becoming one of the few legislations to be neglected and passed in the Greek log of the upper chamber. The vote uh, today on Asian American Crimes Bill has proof that the Senate is giving them an opportunity to work. The Senate can so work to solve important issues. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat, said the Senate floor before the vote. Excuse me. So I just wanted to bring that up and talk a little bit about that because of the massive amounts of uh, incidents of Asian hate crime increasing and uh, it even passed in the Senate when before the bill went to the Senate a lot of people were thinking that that bill was not going to pass 
because of the Republicans in the Congress, but it ended up passing with only one not voting for that bill. And I have one other article by NPR if you do want to know more about this Asian hate crime bill and what's in it. But I just kind of wanted to bring that up as another story that I thought was big enough to bring up uh, for this podcast. So our last story that we're going to be ending with is the CDC. The CDC has recently come out as of probably a week ago now saying that you are now allowed to wear your mask outside and largely inside if you are fully vaccinated. Now, if you're still in a large group of people, with so many people not being vaccinated, you still have to wear your mask. And and they even had some more rules for outside and how you have to wear your mask outside if you're in a certain group size or blah, 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 blah. So they still had their rules a little bit, but in a large part, they have said if you're fully uh, fully vaccinated, you now no longer have to wear your mask. When about a week before they said that, they said with Fauci and general claims by CDC doctors and whatnot, that you did have to wear your mask, even if you are fully vaccinated, because you can get it again, or, uh, yeah, you had to wear your mask. And I have the CDC website here pulled up. And it states, if you want to read it yourself, the exact guidelines. And YouTube, yes, I did put CDC up. And I don't want to spread misinformation. I'm just simply talking about it. So don't take me down. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't think they're going to be that that crazy with it. But it is very interesting to, to hear how uh, the CDC has come out and said that you now longer have to wear masks when beforehand they said that you did have to wear masks. So it's kind of a very weird thing that science would have switched so drastically in just one week. And many people have made note to that. But we first have our NBC article talking about it. Here's the science that convinced the CDC to lift mask mandates. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention on Thursday said masks and social distancing are no longer necessary for people who have been fully vaccinated against the COVID-19. It's a move the agency said was driven by scientific evidence that vaccines play a major role in curbing both infections and transmission of the virus. In announcing the agency updated guidelines, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Wilskinley I think, said that there are numerous reports in their literature that demonstrate the safety and real-world effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. Hello, Heat Noodles. Hopefully you're having a good day. Uh, virus, yeah, we're talking a little bit about the virus. I know, it's uh, always going to be in the topics. Always going to be in the topics. Always. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, she highlighted in particular three recent studies that demonstrated the impact of the vaccines on sympathetic and asymptomatic infections. And one study published just last week on the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines against two variants that are known to be circulating in the United States. And that's one other thing that I have uh, 
seen coming out of. I think it was last week we talked a little bit about India and India's claims for uh, the massive amounts of increase in COVID-19 cases that India was experiencing. And we talked a little bit about that in that India was selling all of their vaccines and keeping none to themselves, blah, 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 blah. And many people have pointed out that that may be wrong because India still sold them, blah, 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 blah. You do have claims about that. But long story short, there's now incidents of mutations of COVID-19 coming out of India and coming out of other uh, countries. And many people have talked about how those mutations of the virus could uh, be... uh, stronger than the uh, than the vaccine that that uh we have now and some people have said that the vaccine should cover those mutations blah 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 blah. but there's also that whole thing going around and and i wanted to bring that up because that is i think what fauci was kind of talking about was saying that you had to keep your mask on because those potential mutants but then the cdc comes down and says no you no longer have to wear the mask so it's just kind of a weird situation when it comes to that indeed news is having a good day that is good to hear uh i'm having a pretty good day as well (laughs) hope even though we're having to talk a lot about some bad news that's happening in the middle east which is not particularly too well but history oftentimes does repeat itself so anyway the findings all add to a growing body of evidence that the vaccines are effective at preventing severe illness and death from the COVID-19 and that they had helped prevent people from spreading the virus to others. We're going to scroll down here a little bit. These statistics help reinforce... Oh, we'll read the statistics here a little bit. Here we go. The U.S. a number of nearly reported COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are all decreasing. The most recent seven-day average for new cases fall, fall about 23% over the previous week. Well, this case said, the seven-day average for daily deaths also declined to 587 per a day, according to the CDC. Today, COVID-19 deaths are at the lowest point since April 2020. Andy Selvitt, the White House COVID-19 advisor, said Thursday in a news briefing, these statistics... These statistics help reinforce that the vaccines are working and working well, said Dr. Uh, said the doctor, an infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at the University of California. It is like we reached a tipping point in terms of weight of the evidence showing that there are the that showing that these are profoundly effective vaccines beyond our wildest dreams and that they are really good at blocking transmission. So they're basically saying that yes, the vaccines are working and they are showing a good enough effectiveness. So now we no longer have to wear masks, but you still can't necessarily live your everyday life because we still have to take precautions. So once it's still a little bit of a weird situation. And I do think it all comes to perception when it comes to masks. Some science have shown that they are effective. And I do think that masks do probably help a little bit with the virus and whatnot. But the question then becomes, do they help enough to ultimately 
serve their needs. And I think that that's been a debate for well over a year when it comes to masks. But we're going to go on to this news clip that shows a little bit of the perception of the CDC and kind of what is happening with the mask. And it's first going to start with the doctor that I previously have just mentioned and then go on to Rachel Maddow, Maddow, I think is how you say her name, um, and her thoughts behind the situation. And no, we're not going to be listening to this whole 12-minute clip. Don't worry about that. Oops. Once it ready to load up here. Discomfort oh. back there. Look, another ad, another ad. Yeah, YouTube, I think, is getting more and more and more and more and more and more and more ads. I think maybe they're almost going bankrupt or something because there's been like a 100% increase in ads by YouTube recently. But anyway. Vaccinated two weeks after your last dose, you can shed your mask. You can shed your mask once you're fully vaccinated. Joining us now on this very big day um, is CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Uh, Dr. Walensky, it's a real pleasure to have you with us tonight. Thanks for making the time to be here. My pleasure. Good evening, Rachel. So I have a lot of feelings <laughs> about this announcement, if I could just speak in personal <laughs> terms. When you said today uh, in that briefing, we have all longed for this moment, like my heart leapt into my throat. Um, it's true. And it is such great news after all this time. And at the same time, I am very nervous about what you said today. It is hard for me to imagine myself you know, waltzing into the stop and shop tomorrow morning and not wearing a mask. I just feel like I'm not wired that way anymore. And it still feels it still feels risky. So I again, forgive me for speaking in personal terms, and I don't mean to be too blunt about this, but how sure <laughs> are you? Um, because this feels like a really big change. So, again, perception. Not saying that masks don't do anything. I don't want to be one of those people that's all, you know, full-on anti-masker. Because I do think that there is some science to suggest that they do. But, again, we're not necessarily really arguing about that right now. We're more arguing about how the the media, how, how people have changed to view masks. And a lot of people, through anecdotal experience uh, with, you know... My friends or whatever have said that it feels very weird not no longer no longer wearing a mask into stores or some restaurants saying that you have to wear masks, some saying you don't. You know, it's a very weird time and you're not really sure exactly what to do. And many people will simply wear the mask just to not have people look at them and think that they are automatically, you know, anti-maskers or automatically bad people for not wearing the mask. And it's become that way because of how controversial in political sense the virus has gotten. Not that the virus itself is controversial, that was probably a wrong term to use. But the media has made the virus so political. And it has caused a huge perception of how the mask is simply viewed when it comes to COVID-19. And I don't necessarily think that that is always the best case scenario for when it comes to dealing with this virus and dealing with this situation. But we're going to let this play on for a little bit longer here. We're sure. I, there's an extraordinary amount of evidence now that demonstrates the vaccines are working in the real world, um, in uh, in cohort studies, um, in care facilities, in in 
across all states um, that these vaccines are working the way they worked in the clinical trials. Importantly, there's also new data um, just even in the last two weeks that demonstrates these vaccines are working um, in, uh, in against the variants that we have circulating here in the United States. And also data has emerged that has demonstrated that um, if you are vaccinated, you are less likely, not likely to asymptomatically shed the virus and give it to others. So it is, it is this um, coalescing of all the evidence now that tells us really um, it is safe to take off your mask. Now, that said, I think your point is really well taken. For the last 15 months, we've been saying wear a mask. And so um, we've become, it's been ingrained in us. You can't leave the house without a mask. Um, I went for a walk for the first time without a mask outside um, a week ago, and, and that felt strange, right? So I think we all are going to have to become comfortable with this again. Um, but what we're saying is now is time to make those efforts to start getting comfortable. You're able to control. Another ad. <laughs> Jeez, another ad. Anyway, let's not get distracted here. Anyway, so there's just a large perception when it comes. And I'm just going to let this play a little bit longer. Because what Rachel has to say a little bit later, I think, is kind of the final point I wanted to mention. So we're just going to let this You're play gonna, a little more. I know end up reiterating some of what you just said in order to answer these questions. But I, I surveyed a lot of people, both on the staff of this show and in my personal life today, in terms of things they feel, feel nervous about still, even after listening to you and listening to the president today. Um, here's one. Uh, if I am vaccinated and the coworker that I sit next to at work is not vaccinated, um, is it really safe for me to not wear a mask all day at work if I know that I'm in the presence of people who aren't vaccinated? I can't control whether or not they're wearing masks. I can only control whether or not I do. Is it safe to be around somebody indoors all day long who hasn't been vaccinated, who may not be mask compliant? What I would say is it is safe for you as a vaccinated person. You're 95% um, protected from disease, um, and in some studies, up to 97% protected from disease for those breakthrough infections that can, you know, rarely occur. So the doctor goes on to kind of answer that question a little bit. But I just wanted to play out that first question because I do think a lot of people tend to think about uh the COVID virus in that way. And and it may not necessarily be a bad thing. Being overly precautious is not necessarily a bad thing to be. But many people have argued that we may have gone too extreme when it comes to mask and when it comes to perception over mask. And I do think that that also has a little bit of truth behind it as well. But as I've said many a times, most often what's in between the two it's the right answer. So the people who are overly cautious and the people who are not cautious at all, being somewhere in between is probably the right way of viewing what happens with COVID-19 and more importantly, what happens to the perception of mask and the role mask have to play with the virus. So that is all I have for today's episode of 20, episode 25. Once again, make sure to check out the Freedom Scoop. Make sure to check out my YouTube channel, The Breakdown with Birkenoff. 
And you can find uh, my Odyssey and BitChute at the Breakdown with Birkenov or the Breakdown with WB, where you can find my new story that I was mentioning uh, earlier in this podcast episode or any of my other videos and live streams that I have done. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all have good mornings, good days, good afternoons, good nights, or whatever time you are listening to. And thank you, Eat Noodles, for stopping by, and I'll catch you on the next one. Thank you.